God's name, amen and amen. So I'm a banana-eating wannabe. And what I mean by that is I love the idea of eating bananas, but when it actually comes to eating the bananas itself, I kind of follow, I don't follow through. <laughs> and of course, that makes my beloved Leia so happy because now she has an overabundance of the crucial ingredient she needs to make her favorite thing, which is banana bread. It's interesting, Leia really lets the rest of the family know when these bananas that were initially open to the whole family is now reservedly hers and hers alone. How? She puts a sheet of white paper over the bananas and in big, bold black letter says, do not touch, hands off. Now, you could laugh at my daughter's expense, but I warn you, you risk laughing at yourself because whether you want to acknowledge it or not, every single one of us in this room has a do not touch item in our lives. Do we not? Of course we do. Maybe it's that toy our parents bought us years ago that has now taken on sentimental value and we still have it in our possession. Maybe it's a family heirloom passed on from generation to generation that you're now currently the guardian of. Or maybe it's an expensive purchase you made recently or even decades ago, but you still make sure that it's handled with secure care, not letting anyone else go near it. Or maybe it's the birth of a beautiful baby that you keep close to you that you don't want strangers or even family members getting too close to because you don't know what germs or viruses they may be carrying. Yes, indeed, we all have something in our lives that we deem to be so important, so invaluable, even so irreplaceable that we say to everyone, hands off, do not touch, including, and dare I say, maybe even especially God himself. Here's the question I have for you this morning. How do you think God would feel, Christian, if there's something in your life that you would dare say in the secrets of your hearts, do not touch God, don't come near it, hands off? How do you think your God would respond to such a, a, a viewpoint of your life? We're beginning today our Advent sermon series entitled Christmas According to the Old Testament. And we're going to be taking a look at certain passages in the Old Testament that gives unique perspective and insight to the true meaning behind this holiday season so that we would be armed and ready to properly celebrate Christmas the way God intended. And we kick off this series looking at one of the most famous that some people even call infamous stories of the Old Testament where God commanded his servant Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, we talk about what made Isaac off limits to God. Number two, why Abraham seemed eager to offer Isaac to God. And finally, how God shocks us all. What made Isaac off limits, why Abraham seemed eager to offer up Isaac, and finally, how God shocks us all. Let's begin with the first point, what made Isaac off limits. Read again with me verse 1 and 2 of our passage where it goes like this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you now when most people read these two verses I just read almost always they focus almost exclusively on the command God gives Abraham in verse 2 which is what take your son and offer him as a burnt offering and of course it makes so much sense why people tend to fixate on that statement because it's a crazy sounding statement god has just told abraham to sacrifice a human being who happens to be his son that he dearly loves of course we want to fixate on that but believe it or not we should not be focusing on that statement instead we should be focusing on the other the one that starts off our whole passage at the beginning of verse one that goes like this after these things 
God tested Abraham. After these things, question, what are the, these things that is being referenced here? What are the prior events that's being called to mind as we study today's passage? Well, you could argue that these are the earlier events uh, prior to this chapter that we're on, the previous chapter, such as when God banished his second wife, Hagar, and their son, Ishmael, his firstborn, because his first wife, Sarah, demanded it. Or it could be referring to Abraham's political peace treaty with King Abimelech that secured peace for him and his family. But according to Old Testament scholars, that these things that are being referenced here are all the events that Abraham experienced from the moment God first called him to follow to the events that we're at in our passage today. And if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, you would know that a lot of these events that Abraham went through that we read in Genesis were very traumatic, troublesome, trial-filled, tested, tempted, tribulation events. These are some events that were so heartbreaking, so harrowing, so sorrowful, so full of suffering. Yeah, for example, you could be thinking about the first time God called him out of the land of Ur, where he left all of his family, all that he was uh, familiar with, into a land that he's ever been. Or maybe it was the stress of constantly having to rescue his knuckleheaded nephew Lot, such as when he had to rescue him from invading armies who took him as booty. Or maybe it could be the events of the decades-long suffering of being barren with his wife Sarah, where they could not have children together when they desperately wanted to have kids. Or maybe it's the fallout of the decision of them trying to remedy this problem of barrenness where Sarah told Abraham, hey, why don't you marry my servant Hagar and we can have a child through her? And then, of course, I just referenced the event of Abraham's anguish of banishing his firstborn Ishmael because Sarah demanded it. Over and over throughout Abraham's life, it was filled with many events that were filled with trials and tribulations and tests to where it seemed like they were never going to end. But then our passage begins with that statement, after these things, a statement that seems to imply, that seems to tease at the possibility that finally Abraham is done. No more trials, no more tribulations, no more tests. He is finally over and done with, and now all that is left for him is just to sit back and relax and enjoy his prized possession, who is Isaac. Isaac. You see, in many ways, Isaac represents the grand prize, the great reward of him enduring all the pain and misery that he had to endure. In other words, Isaac becomes the one thing that makes all the heartache and all the hardships Abraham endured worth it. And because that is so, this is why Isaac became hands off to God as far as Abraham was concerned. Why? Because Isaac's very existence excused all the harrowing pain and sorrow that he had to go through that without Isaac would have been completely inexcusable. You see? Now, we need to pause for just a moment to where I ask of you this question. What is your Isaac? Who is your Isaac? Who is or what is that one thing that makes tolerable the things of life that without this Isaac in your life, your life would be so intolerable? You having a hard time? Let me see if I can help you. For some of you, your Isaac is your lifestyle. Yeah, your lifestyle. You want to do certain things. You want to experience certain enjoyments. You want to hang out with certain types of people. And you don't want anyone to tell you otherwise, including God. For others of you, your Isaac, they're your goals. Yeah, you want to achieve certain milestones. You want to acquire certain things. You want to accomplish certain achievements to where you have certain status, and you don't want anyone interfering with you hitting those goals, including the Almighty himself. For others of you, your Isaac are your relationships. You want to be with a certain type of person, marry a certain kind of spouse, have a certain number of children, or have certain kinds of kids. 
And you don't want anyone to interfere of having these precious people in your lives, including Yahweh. We all have Isaacs in our lives that we deem to be so precious, so important, that we don't want anyone to ask us for it or anyone to ask us to forsake it. They are, as far as we're concerned, hands off, off the table to anyone, including God. Do you guys want to know what my Isaac is? For the sake of transparency, I'll tell you. My Isaac is very similar to Abraham. It's my family, my wife and my five kids. They're my Isaac. How do I know? Because they're the one thing that I cannot stand the idea of ever losing. By the way, that's how you can figure out what your Isaac is. It's the one thing that you cannot stand the idea. You'd be petrified at the idea of ever losing it. And my fear of loss for my family manifests in so many different ways. For example, I fear the loss of my ability to provide for my family. Food on the table, roof over their head. Yes, I fear my inability to provide. And not only that, I also am afraid of the loss of faith of any one of my five kids. I am terrified at the prospect that my children can be so deceived by the world and duped to believe into atheism instead of holding on to the faith that I know is true. I'm also scared of the possibility of my dear wife leaving me and my kids prematurely before I'm ready to say goodbye, whether due to sickness or some freak accident or vice versa, me having to be snuffed out way before I'm ready to go to where now my family has to leave without me, live without me. I am so afraid of losing my family as well as suffering loss in my family that I would never voluntarily put them on the table as an offer for anyone to take, especially God. Why? Because just like Isaac was to Abraham, my family to me is the only thing that justifies all the unjustified pain and misery that I have had to go through in my life. Yeah, my family is the one thing that I will accept as a valid excuse for all the things that without my family would have been so inexcusable as far as I am concerned. And because that is so, do you realize what that means? It means I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble, just like all of you are. Because now all of us are like Abraham. And God now has to teach us the same lesson he's about to teach him. A lesson that is so invaluable that we cannot not know. And what lesson is this? Well, let me begin to construct the answer by going to my next point, which is why Abraham seemed eager to offer up Isaac. Read again with me verse 2 and 3 of our passage. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Okay, come on back. As soon as God commands Abraham to offer up Isaac, Abraham immediately responds. He saddles his donkey, summons two of his servants, and then he brings Isaac along, all implying that Abraham is actually going to go through with it. Yeah which is so inconsistent to how I just portrayed him to you just a moment ago in my previous point. And what I mean by that is Abraham is not behaving as if Isaac is hands off to God. No, just the opposite. Abraham seems to be behaving as if he's ready to put Isaac on the table literally for God to take from him to where as if Abraham has no qualms, no issues, no problems with it whatsoever. But I actually would want to challenge that interpretation. Yeah. Because the Abraham, as we see in those verses I just read, is not as he appears to be, at least not initially. Let me prove it to you. Read again what he says in verse 10 and 12. 
10 through 12. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do not do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So notice, right before Abraham is ready to plunge a knife and sacrifice his son Isaac, God says, stop, don't do it. Why? God says, now I know you fear me. Isn't that a weird statement? Because is that actually possible for God to not know something about someone until they prove it by their actions? Of course not. Right? And if there's anyone who should know this, it's Abraham himself. Because if you read his story over and over, God is constantly teaching him this one lesson. I know everything. I am the all-knowing God. God knows things even when he seems like he's not around. Like when Sarah is laughing at his expense when he prophesied about the coming of Isaac. God also knows things in the way, way future, like when he tells Abraham, hey, one day all your descendants are going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God also knows the inner recesses of the secrets of the human psyche, like when he knew King Abimelech was not guilty of the sin of adultery, even though his actions seemed to imply that he was. Over and over, God teaches Abraham I know it all. I know what's going on inside of you. I know what's going on when I'm seemingly not around. I know things that you could never know. It's all the way future. And yet God portrays himself to Abraham in such a way that is not consistent to who God really is. God is not as he appears to be. Why? Could it be that maybe that's God's ironic way of telling the reader, us, that we should not see Abraham as he appears to be? Specifically in terms of how committed, how dedicated he seems to be for God. Now, I think we need to pause and consider this when it comes to our own Christian life. Because I know there are many Christians who go to church and with their fancy words and even with their actions, they seem to say, there's nothing in my life off the table for you, God. I'm all in. I'm all radical. We come to church and we sing songs, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every step that I make, just have your way with me, God. Just have your way. Have you ever sung that? Have you ever actually thought you believed it? Right? How many of you recognize these things? How many of these things sound familiar? And how many of them is actually true? Probably none of them, right? We are so good at putting up a spiritual front, a religious facade that seems to communicate, I'm all in for Jesus. I'm all ready. Do I give him full-on access to everything in my life, including the things that I would call my Isaacs? But when it comes to the honest truth, we're not truly there when it comes to God, are we? Right? Why? Because we're good at lying to ourselves. Self-deception. Do you know why it was easy for Abraham, seemingly, to appear to offer up Isaac so easily? It's because he was lying to himself. He was lying to himself, thinking that Isaac wasn't really off the table for God, when in fact, in his heart, he was off the table. Yeah. For him, he was lying to himself that Isaac wasn't as precious to him as he really was. Yeah. And the longer Abraham lied to himself like this, the longer he would misunderstand what establishes and flourishes a relationship with God. Let me say that again. The longer Abraham lied to himself, the longer he would misunderstand of what establishes and flourishes a relationship with God. Let me prove this to you. Go back to what God commands. What kind of offering does God want from Abraham? What kind of specific offering does he say? He says what? Give me a burnt offering. 
Now, that should be very weird to you if you're familiar with Scripture. Why? For two reasons. Reason number one, Abraham, prior to this, was never told by God to give such an offering. In fact, in everything that Abraham did as an honor to God, where he built altars, where he stacked rocks at Peniel to show his, his glorifying of God, he never once gave a burnt offering. God never told him prior to this of what a burnt offering even is. And you couple that with the second reason. It's not until another 400 years when God makes a covenant with his people at the mountain of Sinai that he first tells them about what a burnt offering even is with all the instructions. So with those two things in mind, here's what you should expect. When God says, Abraham, give me a burnt offering, you would expect Abraham to go, say what? Huh? A burnt what? What is a burnt offering? What in the world are you talking about? I've never heard such a thing. And yet, you read the text, nothing that indicates Abraham's confusion. He has no idea what he's talking about. No, Abraham is behaving like he knows exactly what God is asking for. He knows exactly what a burnt offering is. Here's the question. How does Abraham know what a burnt offering is? How is he familiar with it? Consider this explanation from the IVP background Bible uh, commentary, says this, quote, In the ancient Near East, the God that provides fertility, El, demanded a portion of what had been produced. This is expressed in the sacrifice of animals, grain, and children. Texts from Phoenician and Punic colonies like Carthage and North Africa describe the ritual of child sacrifice as a means of ensuring continued fertility. The biblical prophets and the laws in, the Deuteron in Deuteronomy and Leviticus expressly forbid this practice but that also implies that it continued to occur. In fact, the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac suggests that Abraham was familiar with human sacrifice and was not surprised by Yahweh's demand. Let me read that last sentence one more time. The story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac suggests that Abraham was familiar with human sacrifice and not surprised by Yahweh's demand. What's he saying? He's saying that Abraham knew what a burnt offering was because that's what his pagan culture taught him all the time. Prior to following God, he lived in the land of Ur and he worshiped pagan gods. And the likelihood is, is that he knew people, maybe even in those families, who actually sacrificed their own children to their pagan deities. This was the cultural religious milieu, the surroundings that Abraham grew up in, which meant it was also the cultural peer pressure that Abraham had to go through. Let me ask you, what happens to a person when they're under peer pressure, right? When things that are PC, right, is in conflict with what you really believe? What do you tend to suppress? What do you tend to deny? What do you tend to ignore? Do you tend to ignore what the pressure is pressuring you to believe and to behave? No, you tend to lie to yourself, don't you, right? The reason why it was so easy for Abraham to lie to himself that Isaac was as precious as he really was, that, that he was off the table, right, is because his, his culture constantly told him that you, the worshiper, if you want to be pleasing in the eyes of your God, you're the one who has to sacrifice. You're the one who has to go through the greatest sorrow. You're the one who has to go through the agony in order to be pleasing in the eyes of your deity. This was the context that Abraham grew up in, which is why he wasn't shocked by it. He was bothered but he wasn't shocked, right? Now think about what I'm telling you here. God is intentionally leading Abraham to think that he is very identical, very similar to the gods of the pagan nations. Why is God doing this? Why by asking Isaac for a burnt offering is he trying to portray himself as being no different than the gods of the pagan world? The answer is gonna shock you. 
And this leads me to my final point, how God shocks us all. Read again with me, verse 2. Let's take it down to verse 8. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they, will <coughs> they went both of them together. I want you to notice something. <coughs> Excuse me. After God gives the command... <clears throat> excuse me, that he is to give Isaac as a burnt offering. In verse 3, it says that Abraham immediately got up early the next day. It says literally, Abraham rose early in the morning. Now, commentators are divided as to why Abraham got up so early. Some commentators think he got up early because he never fell asleep, because he was so filled with so much anguish, so much sorrow at the prospects of having to sacrifice his one and only son that it robbed him of any peace to settle down and have some sleep, some sleep at all, Okay that he could not sleep because he was so under duress. Other commentators think that he got up so early because he was so eager to please God. He was so radically committed to God that he wanted to, to get as quick as possible to doing the very thing that he felt would be pleasing to God, sacrificing Isaac. Here's the question. Which commentators are correct? Which interpretation is right? The answer, they're both right. They're both right. The reason Abraham got up so early because he was eager to please his God, and yet, ironically, it was the very thing that caused him so much anguish, so much duress, so much sorrow. You see, Abraham is suffering what is known as a cognitive dissonance. Do you guys know what a cognitive dissonance is? It's the mental anguish and turmoil a person has when they hold on to two contradicting beliefs. And for Abraham, his cognitive dissonance was telling him, if I want to be pleasing to God, if I want to be the right standing with God, me, the worshiper, I'm the one who has to go through the greatest anguish. I have to suffer the greatest sorrow. I have to do the great sacrifice in order to be pleasing to my God, right? That is what he believed, right? And it was causing him to be of such turmoil and such tenseness. And he knew that the longer Isaac was still living, the more tumultuous and and turmoil he would be suffering. And so, of course, we understand why he wants to get this so over with. He wants to say, no, I just want to get this over. I can't stand holding on to this, letting this linger. But then look at what it says in verse 4. On the third day, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. It took Abraham three long days to do what he wanted to quickly do, quickly. In other words, God intentionally drags out, delays the thing that Abraham was so wanting to get over with. Why? God, why are you doing this? Could it be that God wants to challenge Abraham's current view of him, i.e. thinking that he's just like the pagan gods? Could it be that God is trying to deconstruct Abraham's worldview, his religious worldview, as it pertains to how he thinks God operates? You know, psychologists tell us that if a person goes through cognitive dissonance, the way to overcome it is really simple. It's much simpler than having to kill your own child. 
You know what it is? Just change one of your beliefs. Right? If you want to overcome the, the trauma and the turmoil of cognitive distance, just change one of your beliefs. And for Abraham, that left him with two possible things that he could change. First belief he could change is that he is to be pleasing to God. Second belief, God requires of me, in order to be pleasing in his sight, for the worshiper to offer the greatest sacrifice, to go through the greatest agony, to suffer at all costs, such as loving, sacrificing a child that I love more than I love my own life. Guess which of the two beliefs that Abraham changed. Read again, verse 7 through 8. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Wow. At some point during this three-day-long journey to Moriah, the text doesn't say when or how, but clearly it shows that at some point during this three-day journey, God taught something to Abraham that completely shocked him out of his cognitive dissonance. And what truth is that? At some point during this three-day journey, God told Abraham, I am not like the gods of your fathers. I am not like the pagan gods whatsoever in any way. You see, when God told Abraham, offer up your son, as a burnt offering. That was a test. Test of Abraham's dedication? No. Test to see if Abraham would believe God is holy, not the gods that he is so familiar with. But he failed because he wasn't shocked. And now God had to follow up with this and shock him that he is not like the gods of the nations. Because Abraham grew up in a theology that says, in order for the worshiper to be pleasing to the one who is worshiped, I have to be the one who sacrificed. I have to be the one who goes through the sorrow. I have to be the one who has to go all in radically for my God to be pleased with me. God says, no, it's the other way around, Abraham. It's the one who is worshipped who has to go through the sacrifice. It's the one who is worshipped who has to go through the greatest sorrow. It's the one who is worshipped who has to go all in for you. In other words, it's not Father Abraham who would have to sacrifice his beloved son. It's God the Father who would have to sacrifice his own son. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about the Christmas message, right? The Christmas message that says that God gave to the world his only son to be an offering, to where the result of this offering would result in worshipers being pleased in the sight of the one who was worshiped, in the sight of God. God the Father gave to the world his beloved only son, the person who is the eternal son of God, the second person of the mysterious triune Godhead, right? Scripture says that this person is the most precious, the most important, truly the most irreplaceable person as far as God the Father is concerned, which means he had every right to say to you, to me, hands off. Don't come near him. No, he is off the table for you. But did God the Father do that? No. He freely gave us his son. He gave his son to us to be born in a manger on Bethlehem so that he could grow and become a perfect man so that when he gives a sacrifice of substitution on our behalf, his offering would fully do and fulfill what the burnt offerings of the Old Testament only foreshadowed. He would offer the perfect sacrifice for sin so that anyone who looks to Jesus as Lord and Savior could be pleasing in the eyes of God. Do you understand that? If you do, then you begin to understand how unfathomable, how unmatchable, how unconditional, how undeserving 
the love of God is, the love of the good, good father. Have you experienced that love? If you have, not only do you have the assurance that your sins are forgiven, not only do you have the hope of eternal life, but now you have a new and better Isaac than the one that you currently have. And what I mean by that is you now have something that better justifies all the unjust sorrows and miseries that you had to go through in life. You now have a better Isaac that finally excuses all the heartache, trials, and tribulations you had to go through that without this Isaac would have been so inexcusable. You see? You now have an Isaac that is so much better than the Isaac that you currently hold on to and guard at all costs. What is this Isaac? It's the Isaac of the good, good father's love for you. And when you understand that and when you grasp that, right, then you know that this Isaac is far better than any Isaac that you're holding on to now. Why? Because this Isaac can't be taken away from you. Because the father's love can never forsake you. It can never leave you. It can never die on you. You can never die on it. The father's love, the Isaac, the better Isaac, has been secured permanently, eternally, cosmically through the death of Jesus Christ. Do you guys see that? If you do, then you'll end up like Abraham did at the end of the three-day journey to Moriah. You'll be ready to lay your Isaac down on the table, just like Abraham did in verse 10. He willingly was ready to go through with offering Isaac. Not because he didn't love Isaac anymore. Not because he thought, oh, I got something better than you, Isaac. Okay, you're, you're garbage now. No. But because he can trust that the good, good father loved him so much that he would honor this precious boy of his. That he could offer Isaac and not fear that this God is going to do something terrible like the other gods around him did growing up that he learned. You see, he could now genuinely believe what he was only lying to himself to believe, but didn't really believe that my Isaac is safe to my God. Even the seemingly unforeseeable, uh, uh, unideal circumstances, I trust in the goodness of my God so much that the outcome will always be the best. It will be ideal. It will be perfect. Listen to what it says about Abraham in Hebrews 11. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. Isn't that crazy? Uh, Abraham believed in God's goodness, God's love so much that he instinctively anticipated the thing that God will do that displays his goodness most of all, that displays the power of his love most of all. He anticipated that God will one day raise Isaac from the dead, which he will do, just like he will do for you and for me and for your parents, for your children, because he is the good, good father who does not let his beloved fall into decay. You see? This is who our God is. He is the God who is so, so good because he is the good, good father and he loves us so much that anything that we're tempted to right now to say, hands off, don't go near, off the table, God, you can be assured in his goodness and say, Lord, I give him to you because he is the safest of all. She is the safest of all. This is the safest of all in your hands because you are the good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are.
That's who you are. As we enter into the season of Advent, there's a lot of things I'm going to tell you to remember and to relish. But I want to make sure that we begin this season with this fundamental truth that the God that you worship, the God that sometimes you lie to yourself saying that you're all in, is a God worthy of going all in and entrusting your Isaac to. Here's my question. Will you give him your Isaac? Will you entrust this Isaac to you because he gave his Isaac to you. Let's pray. Father, as we think about the things in our lives and the people that we cherish and how sometimes we can think off the table for you, Lord, don't go near it, don't go near it, don't touch. Father, I can't even imagine of just how insulting and how impudent it is for us to be that way in light of what you have done for us something that this season of Advent will constantly remind us of. But Lord, we also know that you are the good, good Father and that your love for us is so amazingly precious that it becomes a new and better Isaac for us. And I do pray that in moments where life just seems so unjustified, so inexcusable, so intolerable, that we would not cling to the Isaac that we do now, that on its own cannot do much, but instead cling to the greater Isaac of your amazing good, good fatherly love, that that would justify all that is unjust in our lives, that that would excuse all the inexcusable things, that that would allow us to tolerate when life becomes intolerable, that we would see that the greatest Isaac, the true Isaac, Jesus Christ, is the one to whom we say, this is my treasure, this is my delight. Lord, help us to see that because he is your treasure, he is your delight, and you shared him with us. Thank you, God for your faithfulness and your mercies. And let us always relish this truth, not only in this season of Advent, but in every season of our lives. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're now gonna give God his tithes and our offering.